The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. The aorta is the largest artery in the body. It runs from the heart through the centre of your chest and the abdomen. If it ruptures at the level of the abdomen, this is called an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is life-threatening. Dr Peter Bray is a vascular and endovascular surgeon at St John of God in Subiaco, and he's going to help us better understand this condition. So we're with Dr Peter Bray, and we're speaking about aortic abdominal aneurysm, or triple A. Triple A to make it simple. A triple A is an enlargement of an artery. Um, usually um, we have a set size for an artery for a man and a woman, and if it's about one and a half times bigger than normal, we call that an aneurysm. Um, when it's just a little bit bigger than normal, we call it ectasia, um, but an aneurysm is the one we're worried about. Um, at, like when you blow up a balloon, if you blow up an artery far enough, it can get stretched, and worst case scenario, like a balloon, it can pop or rupture. And that's the big concern with aneurysms, that they can rupture unexpectedly. Um, and if you have a big bleed, a big aneurysm in your belly, it can cause you to pass away pretty quickly. Um, if you have an aneurysm rupture at home rather than in hospital, about 80% of people will die right away within a couple of minutes. Um, of the 20% that make it to hospital, only about half are going to get out of hospital because operating on an aneurysm once it's already burst is a lot more difficult than fixing one up before it's burst. Um, aneurysms can happen anywhere. They don't just happen in the belly, but we're talking today about a AAA, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, but they can also occur in the next branch down in the pelvis called the iliac artery, and they can also occur down in the groins, the femoral arteries, or down behind the knees, the popliteal arteries. Um, aneurysms can also occur in the brain. Probably people have heard of younger patients having little aneurysms in the brain. That's quite different to an abdominal aortic aneurysm because that tends to be something you're born with rather than something that develops. Um, but yeah, an aneurysm is any artery that gets bigger than it should and can potentially burst and lead to a threat to your life. Jeepers, it sounds really scary actually. And how many people, how common is a triple A? Well, it's interesting. It's one of those conditions that's levelling off a bit. So the main contributor to aneurysms is smoking by far and away. Um, that's the, the biggest one in Western civilization as far as aneurysms go. And um, as people are smoking less, it's mm. dipping down a bit. But it also happens due to age. As we get older, the arteries can stretch more and we've got a lot of patients living a lot longer. So on average, aneurysms are happening at about the same rate. In Australia, um, there are about four and a half thousand episodes of aneurysms that are being managed in our hospitals around the country per year, about a thousand ruptures per year. And in the community at large, if we look at a group of patients over 65, about 5% of men and about one, one and a half percent of women will have an aneurysm, obviously a lot higher if they have a history of smoking. And it also can have a genetic component. So in people where they have a first degree relative, they have an aneurysm rate of about 20%. So it's much higher if you've got a first degree relative that's got an aneurysm. So why would men suffer from an aneurysm greater than women then? Um, predominantly to, due to the smoking exposure, right. but they um, also uh, women are protected during a lot of their lifetime by their estrogen, by their hormone levels. And so 
women have a bit of a catch-up to do after they hit menopause, which is when they tend to get more vascular disease, whereas men have had that exposure for most of their lives. Um, the mechanism for why people get aneurysms uh, relates to the fact that aneurysms occur just behind your belly button, a little bit above your belly button where the artery splits in two. It's the biggest artery in the body and actually starts in your heart and comes through the chest and down into the belly. And where the artery splits in two, there's... Um, a weakness within the wall of the artery in most of us. It's a bit of a design fault, if you want to, want to mm. look at it the wrong way around. And um, that area can be affected significantly by cigarette smoke. It further damages that elastic layer. And over time, when you have constant pulsatile pressure hitting this branch point, it swells up like a cuff of a hose in, in your garden. It's an area that's likely to give way and stretch up, and we think that's what happens. Um, blood pressure affects it. Men tend to have a lot, lot, lot of blood pressure issues as well, um, and, and all those things contribute. We know that the same things that contribute to blocked arteries, like high cholesterol, can have an effect as well. Um, but you know, it's not as strong an effect as smoking and a family predisposition. What's interesting is the one good thing about diabetes: diabetics don't tend to get aneurysms. So What's that, that? Well, they're so busy blocking and narrowing their arteries that it's the opposite process. So they tend to have hard, calcified, thick-walled arteries which tends to be protective against aneurysm. So I'm not recommending you get diabetes no. to avoid an aneurysm, <laughs> but it's the one thing that is less common in diabetics. So if there's that strong um, genetic side, what what could you do if you've got a family history of, of AAA, of aneurysms? Well, look, the genetic side of it, is, is the rarer group by mm. far. So it's much more commonly, you know, to be associated with smoking. Okay. So I think the first and most important thing is to control the factors you can control. You can't control who your parents are. Mm. So if you've got a predisposition, it's more critical for you than anyone else to not smoke, to make sure your blood pressure is checked. No one can sense their blood pressure. The only way you can get it, you know, know what your blood pressure is by having someone check it. Um, and look at your other risk factors, your cholesterol, um, and, and potentially have an early scan. So in some countries, um, the UK, um, some Scandinavian countries and in the US, they actually have active screening programs for aneurysms. We we don't in Australia. Why is that? It, well, it's a bit of a controversial area. Um, mm. Its pickup rate, if you had it to everyone in the community, is quite poor and it doesn't work out financially viable and the pickup rate is, is very low. But if you target it to high-risk groups, and that means men, generally, smokers and over 65 or people with a family history, then the pickup rate is worthwhile. It, it sort of has um, a better outcome even perhaps than mammography and other things that we accept as routine. Um, so in a lot of countries, they have one-off screening for everyone when they turn 65, particularly men over 65 smokers, that group, um, and, and they do have a benefit. They can show a benefit and a cost-effectiveness to it. Um, but you need to have the backup of then having good, quick follow-up and managing that. The other downside is, is if you screen everyone, and you know, I think this is a little bit of a, a tricky argument, but the, is you'll pick up a lot of small aneurysms. And so there'll be a lot of people, that, you know, as I said, about 5% of men over 65 that will have, say, a three or a three and a half centimetre aneurysm, which is quite small. And we don't treat treat every aneurysm. We only treat them when they get big enough to be a threat because the treatments in their own right cause, cause a lot of risk. Um, a lot of those people are going to have years, if not decades, of this thing in their tummy that, that scares them. And every time they have a funny stomach ache or every time um, you know they, they feel their pulse or, or anything like that, they're going to think, my God, this thing's going to burst. And they really have this sensation of a ticking time bomb. 
And that can really affect people psychologically. So don't get me wrong, I, I'm an advocate for screening. I think mm. we should screen. But if you do have an aneurysm, you need to see someone um, that knows about them and can allay your fears and explain why you do have this thing there that we're not going to rush in and treat. Because if we did, um, due to the risks of surgery and, and relining of these aneurysms, we'd probably harm more people than would benefit. And that's why even if you're told you do have an aneurysm, we'll tend to just monitor it rather than rushing in and treating it. If you were someone that fitted those, were a smoker, over 65, male, perhaps you've got a history, would it be something appropriate to just have a chat with your GP and maybe they might send yeah. them for like a scan if that was something that would concern them? Absolutely. And I think a lot of GPs know this. I mean, you know, we go out and we talk to GPs and, yes. and, and we, we introduce this idea that they should be um, involved on this front because they will see all of these markers for what would put a patient at higher risk. Um, when I have patients that have an aneurysm, I often recommend family members who are smokers be evaluated in that time frame as well. And the test, you know, I didn't go into it before, yeah, but the, it? the actual scan that we use to, to measure the aneurysm is so simple and quick. In the UK, it's done by nurses that visit nursing homes, so you don't need to go to a centre away. It can be done out in remote communities. It's a simple ultrasound machine. Ultrasound machines now can be the size of a laptop computer. Um, and about 98% of people you can scan. There's a small group where they're very, very obese or they've got a tender abdomen where you might not be able to. But most people you can scan. And all you're doing is using ultrasound in the same way that women have their babies checked and you're just bouncing sound waves and measuring the maximum size of the swollen artery. What are some symptoms? Would they get symptoms of this, of an aneurysm? So one of the big things about aneurysms is that there just aren't any symptoms. So this thing grows ever so slowly, a millimetre or two a year at most. As it gets bigger, it can grow a lot faster. But you don't really have any sensation of an aneurysm. You don't feel something growing inside you. Um, very, very rarely, people might have a little bit of clot that builds up inside the aneurysm and it can break away and shower down the leg and cause blockages in the arteries in the legs or discoloured toes. I mean, we call that trashing. So the aneurysm's trashing debris down the leg. But that's, you know, something I might see as a vascular surgeon once every five years, not, not something very common. Um, some people um, might develop symptoms related to blockage of the aneurysm. So aneurysms can rupture, as we said, they can burst, but they can also clot off because where you have an aneurysm, the blood flow is a lot slower and it's very turbulent, um, like a, a river that isn't flowing smoothly, and they can actually clot off. And again, you can have sudden weakness or pain or cold legs and, and problems with blood flow. Um, otherwise, unfortunately, the only symptom is usually at the time of rupture, and that's usually people would faint almost straight away, but otherwise you'd have sudden, severe, worst pain in your life in your belly and your back, and you'd lose consciousness pretty quickly. People do survive, um, and yes. the reason they do is that the aorta, the main artery we're talking about, sits right at the back of the belly. It actually rests on the spinal cord, and it's behind all the bowel and everything else. And in some people, when the artery ruptures, it ruptures freely into your belly, and there's a huge space in your belly, and you lose blood as, as though you've been shot with a, with a bullet. Mm. Um, other people, it bursts backwards, and it gets trapped and walled off, and you can lose a little bit of blood, but then everything stops, and you've got this period of time where you can then get in and fix it up before it then bursts through the second dam, which is you know, back into the belly. And they're the patients that tend to survive and, and make it into hospital. So what are the treatment options? What are the procedures that people have? 
So in years gone by, the only treatment was open surgery, and open surgery was a huge procedure, at least as big as open heart surgery. It involved a big cut down the middle of the belly um, from the top to the bottom, moving all the bowel and everything out of the way to get to the aneurysm, stopping all the blood flow going down into the legs and the pelvis by clamping the artery, opening the aneurysm up, evacuating any blood clot, and then sewing in a graft, a polyester graft by hand, and then closing the aneurysm over the top of it, putting all the bowel back in, sewing the belly. Um, it was the kind of procedure that if someone was, say, over 80, you, you wouldn't even try it. It was, you know, had a mortality so rate of about 5%. Um, and getting over it is a big deal too. Huge cut in the belly. It's very, very painful. People often spend a day or two in the intensive care unit or more if they've got lung problems. Remember, these are people that have already probably had heart attacks and have emphysema because they've been smokers. Um, they also have a weaker connective tissues. Um, the kidneys can be affected. The bowel can be affected. Blood flow to the legs. Infection was pretty rare. Um, but the advantage of open surgery was, generally speaking, once you were done, you were done. It was like a big risk, 5% chance of not making it out of hospital. But once it was fixed, it was fixed and you could get on with your life. Um, it was rare to have late problems. Of course, there are exceptions. Some people could get a little aneurysm above or below where you sewed it and other things that might tinker, but that was sort of it. Um, in, the, in, in the early 90s, um, a guy in South America relined an aneurysm, so used a thing called a stent graft. A stent people have heard of is, is a little metal spring that we use to fix blocked arteries in people's hearts. Um, a graft is what we call a polyester or a fabric that seals a vessel. And when you combine the two together, you end up um, with a tube, with a stent, with a fabric covering. And this is a, a little tightly collapsed structure that you take up through the groin artery and you open it up using X-ray to know where you are with respect to the kidneys and it relines the aneurysm from within. So first of all, you don't need a huge anaesthetic. Um, the patients can breathe on their own. You could even do them under local anaesthetic if you had to or a spinal anaesthetic. You don't have to stop the blood flow. The blood's flowing the whole time you're working. So kidneys and bowel and legs don't have any strain put upon them. And um, uh, patients generally spend, in, in St John's, we spend, get them to spend one night in ICU just so they've got close observation to make sure the little punctures we do in the groin are all okay. But um, often they can go straight back to the ward and usually they're in hospital for two or three days rather than two or three weeks. Um, now, relining relies on having a place that you can get a seal just under the kidneys and in both of the main pelvic arteries. And that's not everyone. So there are some people that still might need to have an open repair, but that number's probably less than 15% now. And the durability of the repair is very good. Um, we've got new generation graphs that have very good long-term results. success is high? Very high, yeah. So very rare to have a failure early. We're more talking five, 10 years down the line where you've got to keep an eye on things. So as opposed to the open patients where you can kind of forget about things after a year, we do tend to check on the relining scans with a simple ultrasound, the same as the one we talked about to diagnose yes. the aneurysm, just once a year to make sure nothing has changed position, nothing has um, repressurized the sac, in which case usually a local anaesthetic procedure is all that's required to add an extra limb or extend things to make it last a lot longer. Um, but certainly a much lower risk, so less than 1% chance of having any major complication or death related to an endoluminal. And nowadays, about nine out of 10 of those, we can do what we call percutaneously, so just with a needle hole through the skin. So you don't even need to have a cut in the groins as you used to five, 10 years ago. So um, you know, it's quite remarkable what you can do mm. now just with a 
one centimetre little cut in the skin in each groin and relining from outside. It is amazing, saving lives at, at a much lower risk. Yeah, and the other thing that is quite something that makes WA stand out that is worth mentioning in this mm. topic is that one of the biggest pioneers in this technology was a guy called Mike Lawrence Brown, who's a Perth vascular surgeon um, with his um, radiographer colleague, uh, David Hartley, who designed a, a graft um, um, called Hartley Lawrence Brown Graft with Cook. And it's the first graft that was used regularly in Australia and the main graft for many years. But this graft also is able to be custom made with little tiny holes or fenestrations that line up with the kidney and the bowel arteries. So that group of patients we couldn't treat before with regular grafts can now be treated with what's called fenestrated graft technology. And that was born right here in Perth. It's now right around the world. Um, it's a huge deal in Europe and the States, but that started here in Perth. That was something that was so invented sometimes when and we designed think here. We're very isolated, but in fact, a lot of fantastic research and medical care is happening here. Yeah, and if you meet any vascular surgeon in the world and mention Perth, they all know Perth. They know because that's where this technology originated from. So is there things that we can do that can prevent us from suffering an aneurysm? Apart but, from obviously not smoking. Yep, that's, that's a definite say, that's no, the, no. That's the big one. I'm <laughs> yeah. um, looking at blood pressure control. Um, no, uh, other than really you know, preventing the things that cause aneurysms and being active with surveillance so you can pick them up early so that you don't have a rupture, there aren't a lot of things we can do because the other one is age and we all have to age um, and these things are, are never really going to go away. There might be some magical pill in the future but we have looked at different medications that might settle the inflammation or reduce the rate that aneurysms grow. Um, there are some antibiotics like doxycycline and there are some other, other compounds but none of them have been proven to make a difference in the long term um, because it's a degenerative process. It's a bit like... Um, why are we still having to have hips and knees replaced for arthritis? You would have thought we'd worked out arthritis by now. And it's one of those things that's degenerative. It's very, very slow. And we don't really have a way of abolishing it. But it doesn't mean that we might not in the future. If um, there are a lot less aneurysms from smoking and it's purely related to degeneration, then maybe there will be some compound that can reduce the breakdown of that tissue that gives you the predisposition to forming an aneurysm. So really smoking and, and having a good lifestyle and looking after ourselves mm. the best we can. And I guess a, 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 a regular health check um, with your GP just to make sure that if you're one of those at-risk groups that you just have this checked because there are, there are no warning signs, there's nothing to look for. Um, I'd even suggest that probably two-thirds of the aneurysms I see now have just been found incidentally. Someone's gone in to look for gallstones or someone's mm. gone in because they've got a kidney stone or they've had a CAT scan of, of their abdomen. Um, most of them are just being found in accidentally um, rather than being specifically sought because, again, they're phantoms. You don't know they're there until you find them on imaging. And be serious about blood pressure control, isn't it? So yeah. important. So I don't think blood pressure would ever cause an aneurysm, but yes. it was one of the reasons that an aneurysm will accelerate its growth rate. So um, if you've got a family history or anything else, you know, there's lots of reasons if your blood pressure controlled, reduce your risk of stroke as well, but it will also slow the rate the aneurysm will grow. So it's, uh, ask your GP to check your blood pressure when you're next at your next visit. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on MediTalk. I really appreciate your time. No worries. Anytime. A big thank you to Dr Bray for sharing his knowledge. To learn more about Dr Bray and St John of God Hospital Subiaco, visit sjog.org.au.
If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.